Tonight I'd like to talk about generosity of spirit. As we're beginning to integrate this week and come back into relationship with others, I thought I would start addressing this issue just a little bit by speaking about the issue of needs needs that we might have and how these needs do not necessarily have to solidify self since what a lot of the exploration we've been doing here has been in regard to what is this self how to understand this and so when we go back into relationship and this self seems to loom up again perhaps we can bring some understanding to that in our relationship in our daily life. I often hear people speak of their spiritual goals and ideals as becoming one with the universe, the desire to feel unity and non-separation, and yet somehow one's idea of this experience could easily overlook the fact that we live in relationship. We live in a world where there are two, where there are you and me, self and other, women and men, sickness and health, birth and death, even one and the universe, or separation and non-separation. There are two. These are relationships. And this relative truth is no more or less important than the truth we are one, or the absolute truth. I am a human being, a person that exists in relationship and has needs. And these needs are of the self. They are of the ego. And this is not a problem. There's no problem in this. We have basic needs of the body. We need food, water, shelter, clothing, medicine. We need this. We have emotional needs for love and for human contact. We have intellectual needs for learning and for information. And we have spiritual needs for understanding and peace of mind. And we get these needs fulfilled in relationship, in relationship to other people, to our parents, family, children, partners, doctors, lawyers, people we're in association with. We get these needs fulfilled in relationship to the earth, to the sun, the moon, the birds, animals and plants, and to ourselves. We often cannot accept that we have these needs. Even the recognition that we have needs is sometimes difficult. Just the acceptance of this alone brings a great deal of ease when we know it's okay to have these needs. If I think of having needs as wrong or bad, and I deny the needs that I have, I may go to two extremes. One, I may think that I need to go it alone, that this is strength. I have to prove how strong I am. I don't need anybody. I can take care of myself. And this is sometimes labeled as independent. There's a song, an old song by Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock, I am an island. That song kind of depicts this attitude But this is denial, and this kind of denial leads to cutting off from others, feeling isolated or alone. The other extreme is, I can't make it alone. I'm weak, I'm helpless. I'm the victim of my environment. I'm too needy. Nobody's going to help someone so needy. And there's judging and worrying and self-pity. And these 
too create the same conditions for loneliness, feeling cut off and isolated. Yet there's no problem in having these needs. We cannot avoid the fact that as human beings these needs will arise. We will have choices and will make choices. The problem arises when there's attachment. The problem will always arise when there's attachment. <laughs> and in this case, around needs, there's two kinds of attachments. One is the attachment to an idea about myself, to a self-image that I have. One, that I don't need anybody, that I'm strong, I can go it alone. An attachment to that idea about myself as being true. Or that I'm too needy, I'm weak, I'm helpless. Who cares about someone like me? Identifying with that self-image. Or my needs are unimportant. I'm not important enough or worthy enough to have what I want. Sometimes we, make, we mistake this for being selfless. Sometimes it, it can appear that we have this ability to give up our needs, to help others. The whole time we're really feeling dissatisfied and resentful, maybe even burnt out. And we don't know why. And we're just in denial about what we need for ourselves. We must look carefully to see what's really going on around this. If any idea I hold about myself and believe that it's true is attachment to self-image, if I believe the storyline about myself as the true me, the real me, then I'll suffer. It will seem like there's no way out because this is, this is the truth, this is reality. So attachment to an idea about myself self-image. The second kind of attachment in relationship to needs is the attachment to getting these needs met, the attachment to the result. Thinking that the outcome of what I need, getting that, is the most important thing in the world and I can't be happy unless I get this thing, this person, or this, this event to happen. For example, I need a relationship or I need a piece of chocolate cake. If I don't have it, I'm going to suffer. I need to have a different body. I need a body that doesn't have any pain in it. <laughs> or I need a body with less fat. <laughs> I have to have a holiday. And then the need, the, the action, the attachment to getting that need met. All the attention then gets focused on the results. We get tunnel vision. We close off to the variety of possibilities, really to the options that are available to us. With this narrow vision, there may be little sensitivity to know how we may be using other people to our advantage for our result, to get our result that we want so desperately. We may not be in touch with what other people need. Either of these attachments, the attachment to self-image or the attachment to getting what I think I need, will lead to suffering. With attachment, my attention is all caught up with self with this identification with self. We call this self-centered. The attention is centered this way. And it interferes with compassionate action towards others. It interferes with helping others without resentment. If I'm not holding on to what I want too tightly, I'm not thinking about or so involved with the I, with what I want. I'm not so caught up in the activity of getting what I want. And this allows for sensitivity to what someone else may be needing at the time. 
I'm not holding so tightly. If I'm not denying what I need, this helps free up the the mischievous, shadowy side of my existence, the side that hides and protects. If I'm denying, I'm hiding, hiding what I don't want to know about myself and don't want others to know. And if I'm not denying, I'm less caught up with self and more available for others really available, really available to be helpful. When we talk of non-attachment, we are talking of letting go, of renunciation, letting go, or giving up something for a higher good, a letting go in which we get something back. Because when there is this letting go, this activates generosity and compassion and sensitivity towards myself and others. Ramdas once said that you can't let go in order to get something back because it knows. <laughs> you can't trick. You can't be a trick there. <laughs> Sometimes by letting go of a need, we can fulfill a deeper need that we might have. I just want to clarify for a moment that when I'm using the word need, I'm using it interchangeably. Whether there's attachment to a need, if there's the attachment to a need, we would call this desire. If there's no attachment, call this preference. So desire or preference, I'm still using the word need. Because we all have these needs, we all have these preferences. So whether there's desire or preference, I'm using the word need. So by letting go of a need, I can fulfill a deeper need. For example, say I had a hard day at work. I was working as a a psychotherapist at a clinic, and I really needed to relax this night. And so I went to the video store and got a video and settled put the video on, settled in, I was really getting into the film, and the phone rings, and it's a friend on the other end of the phone who's really depressed and needs somebody to talk with. Now here there's a potential dilemma. I have a need to be helpful, to want to be with this person, but I also have the need to change the pattern of overextending of doing for others when I'm really needing to take care of myself. So what's more important? I may feel the need to rest at that time, and there's no written rule that I always have to put other people first. I can tell the friend that I'm quite tired after a long day and arrange a time to speak tomorrow. And the deeper need that's being fulfilled here is to change that pattern of overextending, of pushing myself too hard. When we do choose ourselves first, it's not necessary to feel guilty or to blame ourselves. We need to be able to take care of ourselves in order to take care of others. If I'm overextended, burned out, this is really where that phrase burned out comes from, I'm not going to be very helpful. My healing is also important. Your healing is also important. But some of us may tend to go the other way. We may think more about ourselves and less about the needs of others. So when someone calls for help, perhaps the deeper need may be to change the pattern of lack of concern and care for others. That may need to be the need that needs to be changed there. So then I can use these opportunities, the same situation that I described, as an opportunity to let go of self, me, my needs. So we need to see which way it goes, which way it goes for us. When we need to look after and take care of ourselves, Sometimes the tendency is 
to think of ourselves as needy and forget that we all have needs. We may feel more needy if we hide our needs from others, pretending that the needs aren't there, therefore not expressing directly what we need. The communication gets, gets fumbled. We start expressing ourselves covertly or indirectly. We're still putting out what we're, what we're needing, but in a kind of a funny way. We're not really able to say, this is, far, this is as far as I can go by myself. This is my limit. Now I need your help. And when we're expressing needs indirectly, this manifests in a variety of ways. It can happen through just eye contact. Communication can happen through eye contact without verbal expression at all. And a, a kind of eye contact that comes, that manifests like pulling people in, kind of pulling people in with your eyes, looking for signals of acknowledgement like a tightness or a rigidity in the eye contact, a fear of being dismissed or rejected. And the message that's being sent there is, I need you to listen right now. I need a friend. I'm feeling lonely, but I'm frightened you'll reject me. And sometimes we're just sending that message with our eyes because we can't express what's going on directly. Another way of expressing indirectly is asking for something indirectly. For example, say you're home with your partner and you want him to be around. You say, are you meeting Larry tonight? And he says, yes, why? Oh, just wondering. I thought you'd stay home and work on your desk. You can't really say, it'd be really nice to have you home today. I've been missing you a lot. You can't just come out and say what, what it is. There's that fear of rejection, fear of not being able to get the contact. Another way of expressing needs indirectly is by complaining, talking about problems or pains because one's feeling lonely or helpless and needing a connection with some, somebody, complaining in hope for sympathy and attention and contact. It often manifests as whining or self-pity. Don't know how to say, I need someone to talk to right now. I need support. Your friendship is important to me. It's coming right out with what's going on. Another way of being indirect is someone asks your opinion about something, something simple. Do you want to go to the movie? Or what color sofa do you want to buy? Or do you want to visit your mother? And the response is, oh, it doesn't matter. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Appearing like, I have no needs. I have no preferences. I'm cool. Anything that you say. And the truth is that you care a lot. And if you don't go to the movie, you feel bored. Or if the colors go wrong, then you feel resentful. And then you turn it back on yourself and blame yourself for having needs or having preferences. You say, I shouldn't care so much. We may not express our helplessness and need directly. And yet we think, if I don't find a strategy or a solution for getting these needs met, I'll go adrift. I'll become more helpless. If this pattern is not acknowledged, we will do what we can to control the people around us, as well as our environment, to feel some sense of security or stability in that helplessness. If this pattern is not acknowledged, will use the helplessness to gain control, indirectly or covertly. Doing what we can to gain, gain some sense of satisfaction, but never getting to the root of the problem. And the root is the fear. 
the fear of being helpless, the fear of being out of control, the fear of being rejected and alone. When we can acknowledge the the truth, when we can acknowledge the fear and say to ourselves, at this moment I need help. This is an opportunity for change, for transformation. But before this change can happen, first I need to recognize what's happening. Just recognize it and then acknowledge the fact of it. There is fear. There is helplessness. And then accept it. Settle into it. Settle into the reality of what's going on. I must first do this with myself before I can begin to speak to another person. When we can acknowledge the truth, the truth of who we are, this is the chance to go beyond the familiar. Then I can take a risk and be direct and express what's true. I can say, I'd like your help. I can't do this alone. Then when someone responds favorably, we realize the opportunity has been there all along. For the most part, others want to be helpful. They want to show their care and sensitivity. It might even give them a chance to see their own attachment to their own needs, to their their self, the self that they're carrying. Being honest and direct gives us all a chance to drop our roles, our masks, to dissolve our barriers and open to the fullness of humanity. There's a poem that expresses this. She thanked me for helping. I thanked her for letting me. She said, you helped me see who I really was. I said, you showed me to begin with. We can't really hide from each other anyhow. And yet we try with all of our might. (laughs) We put on the mask, hoping we're fooling people. But there's something calling out that says, don't be fooled by me. And I want to read this, which is called, Please Hear What I'm Not Saying. And some of you may have heard this before. Don't be fooled by me. Don't be fooled by the face I wear. For I wear a mask. I wear a thousand masks. Masks that I'm afraid to take off, and none of them are me. Pretending is an art that's second nature with me. But don't be fooled. For God's sake, don't be fooled. I give you the impression that I'm secure, that all is sunny and unruffled with me, within as well as without that confidence is my name and coolness my game, that the water's calm and I'm in command, and that I need no one. But don't believe me, please. (laughs) My surface may be smooth, but my surface is my mask, my ever-varying and ever-concealing mask. Beneath lies no smugness, no complacence. Beneath dwells the real me in confusion, in fear, in aloneness. But I hide this. I don't want anybody to know it. I panic at the thought of my weaknesses and fear exposing them. That's why I frantically create my masks masks to hide behind. They're nonchalant, sophisticated facades to help me pretend, to shield me from the glance that knows. But such a glance can be my salvation, and I know it. That is, if it's allowed by, if it's followed by acceptance, if it's followed by love. That glance can liberate me from myself, from my own self-built prison walls, from the barriers that I so painstakingly erect. That glance assures me of what I can't assure myself, that I'm really worth something. But I don't tell you this. 
I don't dare to. I'm afraid to. I'm afraid you'll think less of me, that you'll laugh, and your laugh would kill me. I'm afraid that deep down I'm nothing, that I'm just, I'm just no good, and you'll see this and reject me. So I play my game, my desperate pretending game, with a facade of assurance, without and a trembling child within. So begins the parade of masks, the glittering but empty parade of masks, and my life becomes a front. I idly chatter to you in suave tones of surface talk. I tell you everything that's nothing, and nothing of what's everything, of what's crying within me. So when I'm going through my routine, do not be fooled by what I'm saying. Please listen carefully and try to hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I'd like to say, but what I cannot say. I dislike hiding, honestly. I dislike the superficial game I'm playing, the superficial phony game. I'd really like to be generous and spontaneous and me, but I need your help, your hand to hold, even though my masks would tell you otherwise. It will not be easy for you. Long-felt inadequacies make my defenses strong. The nearer you approach me, the blinder I may strike back. Despite what books say of humanity, I am irrational. I fight against the very thing that I cry out for. You wonder who I am? You shouldn't, for I am every man and every woman who wears a mask. Don't be fooled by me, at least not by the face I wear. It's a special moment when we stop pushing it all away, the fear, the vulnerability, the doubt, the helplessness. The moment we accept our helplessness, it's no longer who we are. At that moment, we're no longer lost in it. We are the acceptance. We are the compassion. We are the tenderness. Regaining this perspective is a moment of freedom. We may get lost again and again, but something's different. Something's changed. We find in our truthfulness with ourselves and others the very qualities we thought we didn't have. Honesty, gratitude, humor, perseverance, compassion towards ourselves and others. And we may be amazed to find out how much these qualities are attractive to others, that people are drawn to us in our truthfulness. Then people aren't divided into those who have it together, those who don't need anything, and those who are needy. It's not one person with needs and one person without needs. There is no more the one who is helped and the one who is the helper. It's just helping happening. There's giving and receiving happening simultaneously. Who's giving? Who's receiving? It doesn't mean we can't take on roles. We just don't get trapped by them. Even as a helper, we can feel helpless at times. I would question any helper that didn't feel that, didn't feel their helplessness. I know for myself, if I didn't feel the helplessness at times, I wouldn't be challenging myself. I wouldn't be expanding my boundaries, my limitations. By acknowledging that helplessness at times, I'm realizing my highest potential as a human being, I'm not holding back from that. Remember, we are all human beings. We all feel the full range of feelings in life. 
even if it may not appear so from the outside. Appearances are very deceptive. (laughs) For each of us, much of the challenge to us is in the revealing, in expressing our truth. Not letting the fear of being seen or thought of in a judgmental way, not letting that fear stop us from this direct expression of our truth, the fear that we won't be liked or loved, the fear that we'll lose the very contact with others that we need and cherish. But seeing instead, it's by revealing our vulnerability and sincerity that makes us attractive. That's attractive when we can really just be, be this vulnerability, be sensitive, The meditation helps us to know our truth. Meditation with its stillness and silence supports the listening to the heart. We can discover what is actually occurring moment after moment. We can be aware of the thoughts and the feelings. We can learn to know the difference between thoughts and feelings and emotions. And strengthening this awareness of thought and feeling can help us to express what's true. If I know what I'm thinking and I know what I'm feeling, it's easier to express it more clearly, more directly. Sometimes people may know what they're feeling, but they they don't know why. They can't get in touch with the thinking around it. What are the thoughts? What are the assumptions, the ideas that are operating? We can gain access to that thought once you know where to look. But there are thoughts coming and going. We can see that. Some people are very in touch with the thoughts, but they don't know what they're feeling. But now, through the meditation, it helps us to know where to look. We can feel the sensations, the emotions, the movements, energy moving in the body. This can help us be in touch with ourselves. If I can stay open and vulnerable with myself and not close off, then it's more likely I can report to others what I'm experiencing and what I'm needing. It does take a certain willingness to be vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, being honest with oneself, being truthful with oneself, And then it's a matter of reporting to the appropriate person at the appropriate time, which are two very important factors, the appropriate person at the appropriate time, reporting to them what's happening in the moment, what are the thoughts, what are the feelings, what are the intentions and the motivations operating right now, and at the same time observing what are the assumptions that I'm holding about myself in this situation that are blocking my expression of my truth? What's getting in the way of that expression? If fear is operating, the usual assumption is, I will be judged, not liked. I'll lose contact. You can check this out. That's the assumption. There's fear. And once this fear is discovered, then you can do one of two things. Let the fear be there and act anyhow. Or you can also know that it's not the right time and fully acknowledge one's limitation in the moment and accept that and back off. It's not the right time for expression. But without this awareness of of the fear, our options are limited and then change cannot happen. We can't either move with the fear or make the, the fear or make the choice to back off. Sometimes acknowledgement and acceptance and backing off is the most skillful action. Yet it can be hard to accept the fear as being okay. That it's okay to have the fear. It's just fear. It doesn't have to mean anything about me. 
And then it's just a moment of accepting one's limitations. Other times, it's okay to acknowledge and accept the fear and not let it be an obstacle for action. It's really quite incredible how fear does not, in fact, have to be an obstacle. Once it's seen, really seen is not solid, not substantial. We see just the sensations moving and shifting. And fear loses its power to block action and expression. Sometimes it can seem quite risky to talk about personal business, personal experiences, both in the effort to express and the potential consequences if we do express it. So I'd like to mention a few guidelines when speaking about these personal experiences, just generally, and certainly when there's some risk involved in it. The first, and this is something that I've mentioned to some of the people when I've been working with them, is to use I language. And this means using the pronoun I when I'm speaking about myself rather than you or we or one. Oftentimes, lots of times, people will say, when they're talking about their own experience, say in an interview, they'll say, Well, you know when you follow your breath and then the breath goes down to the abdomen and then you, but they're really talking about themselves. Or they say, well, we experience the hearing and then we do this and we do that, but they're talking about themselves. Using the I language is a way to connect, to reconnect with what's going on. Saying, I follow the breath. I experience the hearing, and it's a whole different quality that happens in the body for the speaker and a whole different quality in the listening. It helps in the, lis- in the listening. It's easier to hear when somebody's really touching precisely their own experience. And it's also clarifying because I know what the person's really talking about. I'm not quite sure when they're using the pronoun you or we or one. If it's a delicate issue between two people, using eye language helps the listener to be much less defensive. If I'm speaking about myself rather than the other person or you. For example, to say there's a person who leaves the water running if I get upset about that and I say, you always leave the water running. Another way to communicate that is, when the water is left on, I feel concerned about the water shortage. Takes that person right out of it. There's not the possibility for such defensiveness. Or you say to someone, you never say hello when you walk by. Another communication with the I language would be, when you walk by and don't speak to me, I wonder if something is wrong or if I've done something to upset you. Bringing the experience right back, what's happening over here? Connecting with the truth, with what's really going on. I language is more accurate because all experience And the meaning I give to experience originates with myself. It originates over here. I give meaning to experience based on my own system of beliefs and memories which are collected from past experiences. All thoughts, ideas, beliefs, memories are conditioned by the past. And this bundle of thoughts conditioned by the past determine how I interpret what's happening in the present. This bundle of thoughts determine how I talk about the event. Therefore, the same event experienced by two or more people will be perceived and interpreted differently for each person. I mean, the classic example is when um, the police ask for a report on a car accident. 
each witness has a whole different set of experiences to describe, a whole different, different description for the event. And each person is correct. What they are saying is true for them. It just may, it may differ radically with somebody else's perceptions of the same experience and what they think is true. But each description is the truth. So it's a very good rule of thumb to speak for myself. Saying, this is true for me. This may not be true for you. Speaking for myself, using the I language, is much more spacious. I just report what's happening over here since I'm the expert on my own experience. No one can deny what's happening over here. I'm the expert. We might go out after the course and start talking about how meditation is the greatest thing in the world. But it may be more helpful to say, meditation has really been helpful for me. It might be helpful for you. We don't know. We can only we only know what's going on over here. Then, if I'm really reporting my own experience, I can speak up about what I'm meeting and what's happening for me without the listener or the receiver feeling pressured or defensive. And if I can express myself in this way, really talking about myself there's more likelihood that the person will be able to hear me. I wanted to think of an example of this kind of reporting, and the example I came up with had to do with somebody here cleaning the toilets and the showers. And this is a hypothetical example. <laughs> um, it's an example of someone coming in. It's your job to clean the showers, and someone comes in and and uses the shower right when you're about to clean, that is during the work period. And you want to finish your work during the work period so that you don't have to come back to it after you're finished. And so I was trying to think of an example of that communication, something with a little heat to it, with a little potential conflict. <laughs> and so rather than saying, Take, please take your shower at another time, which would probably be an acceptable communication. We could say to the person something about what's going on for us. It's important for me to get the shower room clean during this work period so I don't have to come back to it. And I'm concerned if you take your shower now, I won't be able to finish. It would be helpful to me if you could take your shower at another time. There's something about what's going over here, the concern over here, so the person knows that it's not, it's not so personal. It's not, a, not a, something that they're doing wrong. You're not blaming them. It's just something that you need for yourself. We could say that we wouldn't open our mouths if we didn't need something. There's a joke about um, this couple who has a baby, and after two or three years, I mean, the baby's quite normal and it's making sounds and gurgles and all that, but when it's time to speak, the, ba the, the, the baby isn't forming any words. And about five years old, the child is not speaking six years old, eight years old, there's no words coming from this child. Ten years old, eleven years old, the parents are getting very concerned, as you can imagine. And one day, this little boy, about eleven years old, sitting at the table, eating dinner, and all of a sudden, he says, God, this soup is terrible. And the mother and the father say, oh, my son, my son, why haven't you spoken before? Please tell us what has been going on that you haven't said anything. 
And he said, well, up until now, everything's been fine. (laughs) So maybe (laughs) if everything was okay, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Maybe we would just live in this sublime silence. But that isn't the way it is. Sometimes we don't have much to say. There's just a need for human contact. We just want to say hello. Yet sometimes it's so hard. We fill the silence with words out of this kind of agitation that we feel, the fear of not being enough if we're just quiet, if we just say hello. And yet all we want to say is, hello, I'd like to know you. You seem like an interesting person. But we, we fill the silence sometimes with all these words. Sometimes when we know there's something we want, but we're not quite sure what it is, the key to looking for what we're needing lies in our intentions for acting. What is motivating me right now? What am I needing right now that's motivating me to speak? What's going on? We can get in touch with this, these intentions for acting and speaking. It's helpful to know this before speaking, speaking and acting so that I can speak and act more directly, not in a confused way. I'm talking, for example, I'm talking to this person because I find them interesting. Or is it because I'm talking to this person because if I'm nice to them, maybe they'll help me get this project finished that I need help on later on. What's the motivation behind this? Sometimes this may not be clear, and that's okay. But if I find myself in situations again and again that I don't want to be in, want to be in often, and I'm not clear how I got there, I may want to look at what the motivations were behind the action. What's going on? Here again, it's not the motiva- it, it's the motivation which is important, not the result. We have no control over the result anyhow. All we have is the intention. What the result is is out of our control. If we are attached to the result, we'll suffer. So just to, to have these intentions and hold these intentions lightly because we don't know if we're going to get the result we want or not. With direct communication, speaking personally and truthfully about our thoughts and feelings, being clear about our intentions, looking to see what assumptions block our communication, this can all be helpful in our self-inquiry for self-understanding. These are tools. These are all tools which can help us to break out of our chains of reactions and habit patterns, to be free from our conditioning, and living in a lighter and a more generous way. To a large degree, this talk is about generosity, and that's why I called it generosity of spirit. Generosity means letting go, non-attachment, letting go of self and the importance we place on self-gratification through need and desire. What do we really need when it comes right down to it? We need food, air, water, shelter, medicine, clothing. We need human contact, kindness. But so much time and energy goes into the glorification of self, 
It's for the sake of the suffering of millions of beings on this planet. We can actively practice generosity, non-attachment, noticing when there's tightness or holding on to something, whether it's possession, need, or even point of view. You can feel this tangibly in the body. Next time you know, next time you know that you're holding on to something, see if there's a choice. See if there's a choice to let go. And just let go. See what it feels like. See what the change feels like in the body. We can practice generosity towards ourselves. Sometimes we need to take care of ourselves first. We can ask ourselves, which am I better at? Giving to others and denying myself in a way that isn't healthy? Or listening to myself and denying others? Is one more dominant than the other? Something to check out. See where the letting go is needed. All of this points to finding a way to go lightly on the earth so that self isn't so imposed and yet we're still living fully and happily realizing that each of our steps every action we take affects the whole world everything we do impinges on everything else we live in an interconnected world we live in relationship. There is self and there is other, but each is dependent on each other for their existence. They are codependent. The line between self and other is necessary for our daily interactions, just as a train needs a track. However, If we truly realize the interdependent nature of self and other, we see self cannot exist without other. Self and other interpenetrate. They interpenetrate each other freely. Self is other. Other is self. This is the principle of interconnectedness. We can't go it alone. That's not what we're here for. Each of us needs each other for a happy and integrated life. We are dependent on each other, just as each thing in the whole world is dependent on everything else in the universe for its existence. The realization of this truth brings happiness rather than bondage. When we realize this truth, we can freely ask for help when we need it because we know that each of us has a responsibility to take care of each other and our planet. Fortunately, we're in this together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.